Welcome to the Great Bays Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, episode 140. We have Lenny Schloss. I'm going to get him on the phone right away. Billy Jean Kai coach. We've got an amazing story, a lifetime in tennis. But let's get him on the phone because it's the middle of the day and he's pressed for time. Usually we do these late at night. Hey, Steve. Lenny, welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast. Thanks for being our guest. Uh, thanks for letting me... Uh be around you no problem it's been great to spend time with you in the past um let's get started because uh we got to get this show rolling now you love tennis um you have a background you played all the grand slams um yeah we're just talking about how you had a record for the longest match played but let's go back to the very beginning how did you get connected to hitting tennis balls um well for those parents that are listening and uh for those coaches that are coaching and in the passion of it you've met me a thousand times uh, a day I was uh, I was a kid that was looking for a success path uh, in a sport uh, I was in baseball and somebody said tennis and I wanted to uh, really shine and so I was a super athlete and um, I took the tennis route because uh, my parents and this is kind of privately not commit to everybody my parents kind of hit a hard time so they said Lenny if you want to go to college it's going to have to be through scholarship and I wasn't a great student so um tennis became my ticket and my survival really to try to get to college and so that's how I really got started was really getting there there's a personal note to mine which I will share because it's kind of this is (laughs) this is life um, my parents were so busy that they, 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 they were a good people, but probably D minus in parenting. So another reason I subconsciously took tennis was it was a way to get my parents' attention because uh, I was really good in baseball. And, and the truth of the matter was, you know, I, even that didn't work. They were so busy, uh, that, um, it, it didn't work, but that was my idea. Hey, I'm out there by myself. I'm not with a bunch with a team. And so, um, it was a way I could thrive and, um, they were good people, but that was something for you parents when you're thinking about it. Uh, just keep hugging your kids. Baltimore Orioles. So you didn't you you switched your dream from the Baltimore Orioles, probably. Um, <laughs> that must have been your yeah. team. Yeah, they were. They were. It's true. Were you a shortstop? I was everything. I, I was shortstop, pitcher, catcher. Wow. I was a superstar at the age of twelve and eleven. I was playing with fifteen, sixteen year olds. So you must have spent endless hours on a backboard. Uh, yeah. you know what, Steve it is so true. Um, it's so true. Again, uh, I'm a pretty happy guy at this stage. But my sister, <laughs> the only way I could get her to hit balls with me is if I could pick up balls on both sides of the court. So it was <laughs> that didn't work very long. So I found the backboard and and literally lived off of it. And you started pretty late, right? Yeah. Well, fourteen, fourteen. Th- 13, 14, I played a little bit. 15 was, okay, Where? what What are you going to do? And, then, and that's okay, well, I'll take tennis. At uh, 16, 17, I was a state champion, um, then a regional champion at 18, no national ranking. Uh, I had a tryout at the University of Tennessee, which in those days, this was legal. Um, you might remember a guy named Tommy Bartlett. Yeah. you remember that name? Yeah. Okay, Tommy was number one men's player in the South. His legs are like tree stumps, and he could stay out there for 47 hours in 110-degree humidity and never make an error. And so he was the men's coach, 
And the guy that knew me and said, hey, this is a pretty good athlete. And he said, all right, bring him down. If he can beat me, I'll give him a scholarship because they didn't have full scholarships and I was going to need that. And I beat him. And that became my ticket to uh, four years at the University of Tennessee. Knoxville's a pretty place. Yeah. I, I mean, all I knew was tennis court and a small bit of study. Uh, were you there? But, all, did you go? Yeah, were you nice. there all four years? Well, actually, it was such a great student. It took me six years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but there's, they were all on scholarships. I stayed and then became the assistant coach and helped recruit. And uh, uh, you know, so they liked me to stick around, and I needed it to get to graduate. So that's what happened. What you do in the summer? Yeah, the summers when you're there, you. You obviously played circuit, uh, the circuit summers. Tennis. I went and played tournaments. Yeah, summers I went and was playing tournaments, and then I come back. <clears throat> so you're 77 years young. Who were the, some of the top? I know you were a top 10 American. Who were some of the top Americans back then? Oh gosh, Arthur Ashe and Gorman and Smith and Lutz was singles. Um, it's hard to me. I, honestly, my my past thinking is so vague. I, and it, and it, I think it's at this stage, the thing that I've learned the most about is not the past and the future, even though I've got a lot to talk about that's going to come up in the future. I really don't think about it much as much as most of the, you know, the peers that I run into, they can tell me who they played when they played, what the scores were. I really blocked it out for some reason. So, you know, I do know that um, I had Arthur down the set in a break at the Australian and, and then I realized I had Arthur down a set in the break at Australia. And uh, so that was, you know, interesting time to play him. I know it uh, big win was one of our biggest wins really was really a cool story. <clears throat> and it's about <clears throat> instinct and athletic instincts that I've gotten involved in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and these athletic instincts, these eye-hand coordination skills, it's fascinating science. Um, and I'll try to segue to that story so it makes sense to to the listener, I beat Tony Roach when he was number two in the world in the first round at the Nationals in the United States clay courts. Um, and uh, at the end of the match, they asked me, and I had about eight or ten more wins like this, what did it feel like when you were down triple match point in the third? And I had no idea what they meant. None. Zero. Zero. I wasn't faking it. It wasn't like, you know, you heard the story about Jack Nicholas and the train came through and they said, did you hear the train? He said, no, I didn't. And sank the putt to win the Masters. Those are athletic instincts that we tap into and they're not teachable, but they actually teach you if you get out of the way uh, and trust. If I had Steve Smith as a coach and I put my instincts in when I'm competing, I would have been, wouldn't have been on this podcast. I would be number one in the world doing something. And so in the future, in, in about you know, a few minutes, I want to share that with everyone because I think that's what's newsworthy, not me, but what I found in my discovery. So I beat him, had a bunch of other wins like that. But at the same time, Steve, uh, as you know, <laughs> I uh, inadvertently within the next round or two would lose to somebody that was below me. Um, and so that began a journey in which eventually I got injured and I had to get off the tour after my third year. But I left the tour with this in mind, that I was a complete failure. And I pause with that because I don't think I'm alone. How I dealt with it might be different and how other kids deal with their uh, lack of 
achieving what they felt would be successful. Mine was based on the fact of mishits. And then I got all the great coaching, Steve, you know, because I was in all the right places. Then it would last temporarily. And then I would be back on the merry-go-round, you know, of, okay, that didn't work, but let me try this and work harder. And I don't think too many people work harder than me. Uh, Roy Emerson was, you know, the, the, the name then, and he actually picked me to be a sparring partner. Uh, and I could keep up with him. So <laughs> he would do these crazy drills where you're up and back and back and up. And, and you, and, uh, and he would be laughing just to see how long you can last. And I lasted. So you know, I became a good sparring partner. Unfortunately, he burned me out. He won uh, Wimbledon, and I lost in the first round. So, With Emerson, was uh, I was fortunate to spend time around Emerson way back when. Yeah. His son was probably about 16 at the time, John Wayne Tennis Club out in California. Yeah, and he yeah. said that uh, he, had, he he said I had to train so hard because my strokes were so inefficient. But there's a story where he stayed up all <laughs> night and playing the piano and singing and played the Wimbledon final next year. You played at a time where it was when amateur tennis was becoming pro tennis. Can you touch upon that? Yeah, but I'm going to just finish this one story oh, before sorry, I do sorry, that because it, 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 it's more relevant to to the journey that I think we all experience in different ways, and I think. Not that I'm unique, but the experience is, is one that is unique. And so uh, when I got injured, Steve, uh, I, I won't make the, I'll draw it out. I went on this journey about what was wrong with me. We started some businesses and we started uh, opening up tennis stores. And, and uh, about, about 10 years, I would just went to all the conferences and I was asked to speak because I was a decent player, but I didn't have anything to speak about. And eventually uh, what happened was and then I eventually on this pathway continue to search out leaders, which is how we, you and I cross paths to verify what I had learned. And this is the, this is the message about in, athletic instincts. Every child, every athlete has eye hand coordination instincts that are super, superhuman. And we use them thousands of years ago to survive, to hunt. We could catch, hit and throw at things and, and our high-hand coordination, we were basically master professionals, far greater than we are today. So what was happening to me was at times they busted through, and I was not overthinking during the point. I was actually focusing on wherever the ball goes and going after it and trusting my instincts. And then at other times, I would have other thoughts. And this led me to what was wrong, and eventually I ended up at this Wilmer, the Wilmer Isaac, major eye-brain institute that this man knew, knew about me. And the story is relevant, and I'll try not to be too blabbermouth. They were actually doing some work. They could care less about athletes. They're studying the brain and dyslexia and, and anything that had to do with the discovery of the brain. They were leaders in the world. So what's that have to do with this conversation? Dr. Goldberg was the guy who knew me in back in Baltimore. And he said, Lenny, I know what you're looking for, and I think I have your answer. I said, what's that? He said, it's all about the eye. I said, what do you mean? And he said, you are dependent on your eye. You can have the best technique in the world. And as you know, Steve, if your eye is distracted, that signal gets broken. And uh, we just did a study with the Baltimore Orioles leading hitter who dropped his average 50 points. There was nothing wrong with his technique, but everything was wrong with his eye and what he was thinking. And he was overthinking and he was pulling all the images and went into it. And so I went into a huge rabbit hole for about 20 years. Nine months later, though, for the first time after that meeting, I ran into another person who was studying human athletic instincts and how their eye was naturally 
connected to the hand. And when it's when you could get a Steve Smith technology built into it, you could have amazing result in a quarter of the time because you depend on your eye to correct. When Steve's not around, and I mean this, I've seen you do miracles. I went to your academies, and you you are you and Vic. It's, it's why I'm honored to be here. I just wanted to share the piece that I found is the one thing that that is an amazing subject is the eye and the reps that we need for the eye. So how do you put two and two together? And so the end of the story is in this walking commercial that I guess I ended up doing is the Steve Smiths of the world are dependent upon quality reps. And when they get those quality reps, there's nobody can beat their players. And what we found is a way now to get the quality reps, tie the eye into it, where 80% of the learning can be done at home on these uh, sweet spot brain training devices. Billie Jean King's now come into it. And yes, I am doing this because I, I want, we want the world to keep playing better. And you get these devices and, and then this is how you can now become the best athlete with the methodologies that you guys are doing. So at the end of the day, I know this isn't kind of what the subject, but I wanted your permission. And that's why I asked you ahead of time if I could share about that. Oh, no, um, that's great. I there is, there is a way now with shadow swings that we can take the shadow swings and the methodologies of the coach. And Steve knows I'm not blowing smoke up his ass. I've been a fan of his for a long time. <laughs> um, is that it's taken this amount of years. It's over 20 years. Uh, Arthur Ashe was involved in my journey. He came on board. He coached me to, here's what you have to do. You have to open up an academy. You're going to have to prove some stats. I'll stick it with you. Um, gave me his personal number. He then, unfortunately passed away three years later. The academies, we trained over 15,000 students, uh, won the National USTA Award. We had an old facility, but we, we made it work. Um, and we continue to test and test and test these devices to test the eye, to test the methodology that it could work. And then we finally created uh, a new partnership with Billie Jean King, the second person. Uh, 11 years ago, I said, Billie Jean King, we're now ready. What do you want to do? She says, get this into the schools. we got to get these kids brain trained. We can make tennis be the ideal first sport. So now we have just formed a partnership with the USDA. I know I'm rambling, but this all makes sense, hopefully, to all of us, that the eye is a critical piece. It's, it's, it's one that we can now help the sport with. The shadow swings and the, and the eye coaching systems all work together. So the best thing we now figure is we did a study of the Grand Slam winners. We said, well, what are they doing with their eye? Where's their ball landing? And in this study, stop me anytime I go off track, please. Oh, in no this problem. study, in this study, we found over 100 sites, over 2,000 players on court that the pros 50% of the time are only getting 50% of the potential out of their skills. 50%. The other 50%, the ball is landing off center. And we all know that means you're losing spin, accuracy, power. The ball has to land in the center to get the maximum. Pros, 50%. We also found that the pros, 90% of the time, everybody's going to say, oh, yeah, pros are always on balance. 90% of the time, they're off balance. Like like basketball players shooting you know, three-pointers off balance. But at the point of contact, they're focused just like you teach. They, nothing breaks that. Amateurs, top to bottom, amateurs, what would you guess their uh, sweet spot hits are? 
they're getting 20% solid hits, 80% miss hits off center. So the points are all last long. It's nothing to do with the with the methodology, nothing to do with the coach, not the player's fault, not the student fault. It is the fault of their eye, that their eyes move. And you can see where the Grand Slam winner's eyes are, where Federer's eyes are. They're on the backside of the ball. The ball is already left. And on the rest of us, we've already shifted to that throwing sport where we now are looking to see where the ball's going. When you retrain a brain, we all could be masterful at hitting. So that's that's the future of what we see in sport. That's the future of what we see in the brain. It's what we're going to put into the school systems. We're already in two or 300. Our goal is to be, <laughs> there's 130,000 schools, so there's uh, 50 million kids, and our kids are in terrible shape. We've formed a partnership with Fit America, the leading organization for kids to get fit that are um, uh, just, the obesity is terrible. We're out of 39 countries, we're 39th wow. uh, in our, our kids' obesity. We can't even qualify for the military. The kids don't even go to PE because the parents say we don't want the kids to get uh, over-exercise or diabetes or whatever it is. So we're now getting involved with the PE uh, conferences with Shape America. Um, and we are going to make a difference with these kids. We're going to get these devices into the school systems. So they, you just need 10 minutes a day to hit on them. And it refocuses the brain. We're going to use tennis as the ideal sport. So kids will be able to focus better in sport and academics. And it goes back to the 80-20, which is 80% of the skills that need to be learned can be done before they go to the court. When you think of a fighter, you say, well, well, a fighter does 80% of the skills outside the ring on the punching bag. But um, So it all makes sense, but I think we've cracked the code. So Billy Jean said, yep, let's do it. And so we're in the schools. And now I'm talking to Steve Smith and why am I doing this so Obviously, is we want this to get out. We're not we're not taking the place of anything. We're adding into the fact that if you use these systems now, the way it's taken us ten years to redevelop it and get it to where it works, we can actually train people on Zoom five minutes, uh, ten minutes a day. Uh, they get four or five Zoom lessons. We clear their brain out. They see and think like a Grand Slam winner. Their brains are clear. They focus. And it's we call it the Mayo Clinic approach. So there you go, Steve. I'm going to get off my horse and then go back to your question. Well, uh, let me ask this uh, to connect to your past to your future. We have people play. We're telling parents, hey, go to garage sales, buy wooden rackets, find old wooden rackets. You obviously grew yeah. up with a wooden racket, but I'm going to guess a Kramer or a Dunlop Max Bly. Um, yeah. We, we feel that when someone hits with a wooden racket, it helps them keep their head still and, and you know, just because I think the, the, the new rackets uh, are, what would the word be, uh, more forgiving? What would your comment be with yeah, the old yeah. rackets? I think there's a yes and, yes and maybe not. Uh, yes, that less is better in terms of being able to get what you want done. So you have to focus better. No, in the fact that whatever you're thinking controls what your eyes doing. So whether I'm handling a spoon racket or a Wilson racket, or a Federer racket, or a wooden racket, what we found is what you're thinking during contact depends on what you're, what will happen. So whether it's wood or not, I think wood adds to the benefit that I have to stay in the moment better. But what we do is we now take your thinking during the point, when the ball is moving, and we now are the first system in the world to train what you should be thinking during the point. 
as you mentioned to me, Jim Lehrer is one of our all-time leaders and the other uh, sports psychologists. They have mastered between points. We are now the first ones to master what should my child, what should what is a Grand Slam winner thinking during the point that triggers his athletic instinct so his eye stays all the way through contact. And it's basically, you've got to think about just making, hitting, just hitting. Get to it, make a solid contact. Get to it, make a solid contact. And trust your instincts. If you do that, these instincts take over. And that's actually how I beat, you know, all these players is how I didn't, I wouldn't, you know, if you had coached me, you say, Lenny, what do you think about? Did you work on that? I said, yeah, no, Steve, they were all there because evidently they were all there because all I did was run down every ball and make to it, make a solid hit. And next thing I know, the match is over. And a cute story that summed this up is when I met with Billie Jean and we, and I said, this is what this does. She said, do you know what my newsletter is? And I said, no. I didn't do my homework, uh, but we knew each other from the tour. She said, it's called point of contact training. It's called POC, point of contact. Everything I believed that I could do was built upon my ability to keep my eye on my side of the point of contact. Everything I did, I could never teach it. I tried to teach Martina. I tried to take the Fed Cup. I went to everybody. When I was sitting in the green room before I'd walk out into the, to Wimbledon, to the finals, or to any tournament, I had my ball. And and I said, this is what I did. I looked at my side of the ball, and I said, I see you. You're my side of the ball. I don't care who I'm playing on the other side of the ball. At the end of the match, I'll determine what's on the other side of the ball. If you watch her play, you watch Federer play, you watch a Grand Slam player play, you watch Medvedev play, technique-wise are all different. Shoe sizes are all different. Racket sizes are all different. The one thing that is the same is instinctively they're on their side of the ball after contact. Tiger Woods. Um, volleyball players that mental component whether it's a wood racket or not we still have to train we all know this what should we be thinking when the ball is coming over what do I think when I'm tracking what do I think when I'm making contact those are the three thoughts that we train every player for anticipation there's a specific thought which is simply just get ready to go when it's coming to you get to your best position when you hit it trust your instincts and then <laughs> Billie Jean King, I was fortunate enough to see her play at Wimbledon. I know Arthur Ashe used to say, hey, yeah. the, the old lady is a good player. I, I tell kids <laughs> today that, you know, from the service line in, you know, of course, there's Narotzalova, there's others, but Billie Jean King, I mean, the, the players today, really men and women, they don't play that well from the service line in, not the way she played. I mean, she was just so good. I think she uh, was so, so emphatic about keeping her head still that she would even sometimes shift her head backwards. Could you touch upon... I mean, I think with Federer, people say, hey, is he looking through the strings? What do you, could you elaborate being on the other side of the ball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm up to the third grade in expertise now in the, the neurological side of things. So when your ball is, comes within the last three feet, there's a switching mechanism between tracking and focusing. Um, and the, when the focusing begins, your eye freezes, right? And it picks up any information. It's like looking at your watch. Okay, now I'm focused. Uh, I can see whatever's right there. Or I'm going to hammer a nail. During that moment, that ball flashes through, and you see a flash of something, but you don't see anything. But you see that flash. That's the moment in which the strike ends. When I hit a nail, the hitting concept ends at contact. When I hit the ball, the hitting concept ends ends neurologically at contact. There is no direction of where the ball is going. So 
So what Federer is seeing is it, it might look like he has turned his head backward, but is actually perfectly still. His eye has stopped. The eye fixation is at a point in time at the contact, and then it leaves. In doing that, that signal, that neural pathway to the hand, the hand needs, it's like uh, the headlights, you know, where am I going? Where am I going? Okay, there. We're going cross court. Okay, great. Boom. So you, then you ask the question, how in the world can he hit a cross court if he doesn't look? How's the hand going to know where to go? And so that's really the more obvious question, or not the, the more important question that we discovered and that we teach is visualization. And the process is called Vimal, and we patent it now. The top players in the world, right before contact, whether it's golf, soccer, baseball, or tennis, the Grand Slam winners visualize. What do they visualize? Where they're going to hit it. In the last three feet, the visualization kicks in, okay, and then they focus. And then transition separates a miss hit from a solid hit, from a Grand Slam winner, from the guy he's playing. It's the more solid hits they have. Is is Vimal, is that an acronym? Yeah, it's an acronym for visualize, hit. Well, then I'll get. Well, I'll just go to that. Steve, remember you got to guide me because I'm a blabbermouth and I may not be serving you well. What you want me? No, to you're be doing, doing great. So, you're doing great. It's fantastic. Okay. Um, well, thanks for just stopping me. Vimo is um, our acronym for a neuropathway accelerator, meaning clear out their brain so that whatever Steve put in, whatever coach puts puts in, gets out on time through the hand. And if okay. it doesn't then Vimmel clears it out. And Vimmel means you visualize. This is what happens in the last three feet of the brain. You visualize, then you make hit. That's the instinct to hit. What's the next instinct? M. Move. In my move, you'll watch better. After he hits, he's not looking. He's moving. Then the fourth instinct is to look. The instinct to look is last. When that L, the V-H-M-L, when that L gets nasty and it jumps up in front of the H and I look before I hit, your instincts say, adios, you're on your own. You know, I'm not going to fix that stroke for you. But when you visualize hit, and you in golf, you go ahead and look. Okay, I hit, then I look. They don't look while they're hitting. They hit, then they look. Uh, they have strengthened the brain so much. It's like a muscle. Now I have no reason to look. Why? It's not that I'm mentally tough. I have no reason. I already see it in my mind. I see the hole. I see the cross court. It's in my mind, so now there's no reason to look. But the visualization is like a mental giant steroid steel fence compartment around your brain. Nothing can get in in that split moment when you visualize where your clothes are in your closet. When you visualize anything, it occupies and it separates. One of them separates the human instincts. From other animals is we can visualize. So we use it for all kinds of things, but Grand Slam winners, they use it to hit. So we want to promote for every coach to start using Vimmel to their benefit. Visualize, then hit, then move, then look. If you visualize, hit, look, guess what all you are going to look like? You're going to visualize, you're going to hit a good shot. Most of the time it happens outside the doubles alleys. We've done so much friggin' research. Most of the time it happens when you get outside the zone. I hit a shot, I hit a good and I look because I'm not, I'm afraid. As soon as I look, I stop. Now I've left the whole court open. The Grand Slam winners, they hit. They begin their recovery back. Then they look, they're back inside. So everybody can do these uh, instinctive patterns. And when we do them for tennis, then uh, we're going to have a, 
the coaches actually get the biggest benefit because now they can teach their players so much more than what they used to teach them. You know, it takes three or four or five, six hours. How about if we can get it done where 80% of it's done, the reps are done at home on Vimmel with whatever the skill is, then come back to the coach. Hey, coach, I'm ready for something else. It's, it's a, it's, so for me, you know, my excitement is coming through. Uh, obviously, I benefit from this. I've, I've spent 25, 30 years now in this side of the fence after leaving the tour feeling like what was wrong with me. And so I, I do believe that the future of our sport will be improved by us taking advantage of the coach's knowledge. And the way to take advantage of our coach's knowledge faster is to <laughs> is to get 80% of the skills done in an environment in which your brain is not looking over the net, which you and I talked about. The flyaway ball is the major neurological abstraction to our eye. Federer doesn't care where the ball is flying because he sees in his mind. Uh, where it's going to go. Um, I clear, I cared too much at times, and at other times I didn't. I just I couldn't miss. So there you go. Another long answer to a simple question. Uh, you're one of you're so humble about your playing background, and I can appreciate how you've gone forward, and you're not like a lot of former players are hung up on that. Um, but let's just yeah. take a time out yeah. with, I was uh, working for Tennis Corporation of America, the, I guess mm. a CFO of someone you probably know really well, Doug Cash. He, yeah. had a, he had a training session Good for, for pros. Um, and it might have lasted four hours, but it, it was Lenny Schloss. You were, he was about your club in Baltimore where you had yeah. like pro shop currency, monopoly money for your right. players. And it was based right. on right. attendance records <laughs> and report cards. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about, I know that certainly yeah. you were a player um, and then you've been so involved with the Billie Jean I coach and everything goes with that. But how about yeah. in between where yeah. you became a club owner and worked with all these yeah. players and teaching pros? Is that where you did the project with yeah. Arthur Ashe in Baltimore at the club you had? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, the retail thing was uh, a default. I got off the tour and went back to Baltimore. It was a big fish in a little pond. It was Sam Shriver and myself for a player that had gotten out of there. And um, so when I came back, uh, the natural thing was um, uh, to open up a tennis store called Totally Tennis. And so that was... Um, that, that bought me the time for the 10, 12 years we ran that. We opened up a bunch of them. Um, uh, I was able to go around the t- country and try to figure out what was wrong with me. And then when that finished and uh, we sold the stores, I said to my wife, I really want to figure this out and I need to start coaching to do it. So um, there was a, a country club that had always called me to say, we, we need another coach. We need another coach. You know how it is. You know the pros don't last very long, and the ones that do are so special, they stay forever. So I was constantly feeding the coach. I said, I think I got one for you. I said, who's that? I said, me. And so I took that gig and uh, spent about six, seven years in the in the summer teaching there, continuing to figure out the uh, – no, I, I changed that. I'm sorry. During that time when the 10 years I met the uh, – in my backyard, I realized was the answer to the eye, and nine months later was the Dr. Ahn, who was the – world-class scientist who Arthur Ashe says is probably the smartest man he's ever met in sports. Um, after he did this study of the human uh, biology and the thumb and how our thumb separated us from all the other creatures and how we are able to do fine motor skills and grass rackets and throw things and do things all because of that. And our brain began to develop because of that one feature. And then it goes on and on and on. So this gentleman studied, Steve, from inside out um, the human system. 
Um, and I can tell you, I have more knowledge that I don't understand than ever. But this was 15 years that I stood with this and was being trained and understanding. And he spoke, speaks Chinese, so it was really hard for him to spell it out to me the way you and I are trying to spell it out. But at the end of the day, um, I went to the, I met him, and then I said, no, I've got to, I said, Arthur, what do I, what do we do with this? He says, go get a facility. And that's where Doug Cash comes in. Uh, in the meantime, our stores were pretty cool. When you came in for a racket, uh, our, our people who sold rackets wore white uh, prescription uh, doctor's jackets <laughs> and would uh, have a pad and pencil and with a bunch of questions, you know, how long you've been playing, what are you looking for, more power and control, what you're writing. And so it was, we really did things unusually interesting way we were treating people. And if you had anything, you had it for five years, you could bring it back. We'd still give you the money back. So we kept it at 5%. You know, it wouldn't matter. We serviced at 95%. And if somebody were, uh, when were we opened up, we get your racket ready in two days, right? And somebody said, we can get it ready in two days. Then we went to one day. And then somebody said, one day in our neighborhood. I said, okay, we're going to go to half a day. They said, half a day. Then we went to one hour service. And I kept the string of there all the time. So we still kept owning that market. So we went to the tennis club, just so you can know my brain doesn't always work in order. Um, you didn't have any money um, to really run a tennis club. We bought the club out of uh, bankruptcy. Uh, I got a backer, and everything we did, we had to do um, self-fund. So the, it was doing uh, three or four hundred thousand dollars a year. It needs to do um, five to six hundred thousand dollars a year. We did seven hundred fifty thousand our first year. Second year, we kept growing, and it was it, it went to it went really big. How we got there was what I think Doug was interested in. How in the world could six courts in a dilapidated building that we had buckets that still leaked, you know, it was nice, it was nice in certain ways. Um, do, uh, I forgot what we were doing, $125,000 a court in instruction, 150, something like that. Well beyond the, the average of 60,000, 70,000. I'm not sure what all the numbers are. We were just well past it. But the biggest part was how we would do it with a 3% marketing budget. 3% marketing budget is nothing, right? That's, you know, 15, 10,000 is nothing there for that. How do we do it? Everybody that worked there, uh, our front desk became the biggest sales group in the country for selling. When we did uh, three quarters million dollars in instruction alone, a third of that was the front desk people. When you come in saying, how are you playing? And we train them to ask you how you're playing. And this is all gets back to people and communication. And they say, you know, you heard about this new, new, uh, new, new uh, system that you can actually improve um, no matter what your level is in 30 minutes just by improving. It's a cardio workout that actually improves your eyes so you can hit the ball straighter and cleaner right away. It doesn't matter if you never play tennis, blah, blah, blah. We had a whole training program, completely trained in it. And, and at the end of the day, um, for every 10 hours of work, and we had 30,000 hours on the front desk, one out of 10 signed up, and we booked 50% of them. And so the cost is ridiculously, you know, we're, we're making 500 bucks an hour, uh, one out of two, and they signed up for 500 bucks, which is unheard of 30 years ago, because the system that we guaranteed them was based on balls. How many balls you will get in our program was the deciding factor. And there's a relevancy to what Bimel is. And it's a relevancy to what every coach needs the most. The number one is if I can get my students to get enough quality reps 
they'll be successful and I can help them more. We started that ancient idea there and you would sign up for, okay, I want uh, uh, the 1,000 ball program. Well, that's four weeks. I want the 15,000 mile program. Well, that would get you up two levels. And and we had adults levels. We started 1-0 up to 5-0. And kids levels, we started with grades. Okay, your child's in the second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Now, a child might be eight years old, but after after three months, he could be in the, instead of in the fifth, uh, third grade, he could be in eighth grade because we accelerate the eye-hand coordination at a much faster rate than his age group because he's going to get the 10,000 ball program or the 15. And everything was tied to money. No matter what you took, if you took a 20,000 ball program, which is about 52 weeks, you never paid more than $25 a week. Never paid more than $25 a week. And people told me I was crazy because that would basically take, took about 15 uh, months, not 12 months. That was a 12 month program. So I was at risk for three months. You know what my loss was? Less than 1% on anybody where I went out on the limb and said, okay, we're going to extend it because we wanted to keep it $25 a month. So nobody was left um, not being able to afford something that we offered. So even though we're in a nice neighborhood, we had a very uh, cross section of kids, even Special Olympic Down syndromes. They came in. We didn't charge them. We just did them at lunchtime where we had some open court. So there's a great unique place. Um, but for me and for Arthur, who started me, I could have cared less about being a successful club owner. What I cared most about was figuring this puzzle out. And um, so I ended up with two people that are now um, the heads of the U.S. Open. Arthur Ashe and Billie Jean King um, were the ones who stuck with me. And um, now we're ready to launch this Vimmel thing. So that's where the club was. Doug flew his team down. And they stayed with us for a, a weekend, walked around, followed it, followed our money. The money wasn't money, but what we did, Steve, is we had instant gratification, like the fitness center. I own a fitness center as well inside this place. Um, and we converted that into a marketing avenue as well. So everybody that joined fitness, we gave them a cardio workout, we called it, which is our 30-minute lesson. And But we didn't do as well as I thought we'd do. I thought we'd convert 50% of them, but we converted like maybe 15, 20% of them. Because they were just into fitness and they didn't care about tennis. And, but we did at least get a conversion out of it. We had about 1,500 members in that, so that was good. So um kind of lost my thought. Oh, I know what it was. Instant gratification for the coaches. We did paper. And that was every every week, every lesson, a kid left with something to take home. And my daughter was in a private school and I was getting stuff all the time, show me how I was like, so, man, look at what I'm paying for. They're, they're doing this, they're doing that, they're doing this. But in tennis, the kids go home empty-handed. And what do they talk about? They you know, they don't have much to talk about because they're so brain dead. So they got coupons. And the coupons were based on improvement and, and attitude. And they got points for those. And they kept those points. And when they got to 500, which would be about five sessions, they could go in and get from, uh, uh, these prizes. And then at 1,000 prizes. And, uh, and they were big prizes. I mean, they were rackets and things that were pretty expensive, you know. So, But it became an incentive for the kids to have a good attitude and how many points did they get. Hey, look, I got 100 points. How was your lesson today? They didn't talk about lesson. I got 100 points. I got 100 points. I got 50 points. For those of you who are listening, there's nothing better than a pat on the back when a kid, and especially in these days, 
and it's very hard for the kids to remember, as we know, because their attention is we're fighting that attention deficit issue more and more. And I can tell you with the PE teachers, they're they are it's a war they're losing. Uh, so we're going to help them there. So that's kind of what we did, Steve. And then uh, monthly, what we had is we had awards every month. There was the leadership award. Who was the leader uh, in, in improvement and attitude? And they got a certificate. And then every two to three months, if you're on a eight month program, eight week program, then it's time for you to graduate. And we knew it. Our system was based on individual, not groups. I knew every individual. Okay, November twelfth, Johnny is going to be uh, finishing up. So uh, October twelfth, we will uh, start talking to Johnny about what he wants to do when he finishes his ten thousand ball program, and rebook him. And we averaged, we averaged about two years per student. Uh, on our 50%. No, that's not true. About a year and a half. Yeah. Uh, two years have been 100%. So, and so, so if I'm making sense, they got, they got certificates for their next level. Here it is. And the certificates say you have now achieved a 3.0 level, which is equivalent to eighth grade in school. Most of these kids are in fifth grade. So they're, but their eye hand coordination was that. And we had skills tests that they had to pass to get to that. So it was really legitimate. Although I don't think it was scientifically uh, as, clean as we are today, at least was legitimate and they had to do something um, to achieve something. And then they would go to their, and their certificate would go on their wall and on it would say for you to achieve your next level, if you're 3-0 to get to the 3-5, you will need 17,000 more balls. And then we'd sign up for 17,000 more balls. <laughs> and that's what Doug liked, the incentive and the immediate gratification and the personalization of the program. And no one, not one person and I think Doug does this now, or did do it. Not one person ever of these 15,000, probably somebody did, um, ever got to go walk into a class, ever. They had to take a 30-minute uh, workout, and they filled out their history sheet. So when they come onto my court, I get the history sheet. I say, oh, you uh, went to such a high school. This is your, you played tennis, such and such. Uh, you're also a soccer. You also did. You, I see you had a knee injury. How's that doing? Okay, so, so it's all everything was personalized, handed to the coach before you got to the court. The coach had that certificate. I mean, had that history sheet. So he knew. And I had, uh, I had a lot of coaches. I mean, we had 600 coaches over the period of time. There's like 12 or so at a time. They knew that they knew the student before they walked on, knew about them, their history, because it was all done up front. So the system was personalized. 30 minutes, get on the court every week to take something home that for the kids now for the adults it was different we didn't do we didn't do that but we did have certificates for for what you signed up for we did know when you you're on an eight weeks you're on 16 weeks you're on 24 weeks you're on the year program we did know all of that so when their grouping was up it was really cool instead of having to sign up oh yeah we have 50 80 students in the stress no we got one student this week we got three this week we got four this week that we need to make sure we pay attention to so it was a pretty cool system that was a long one, too. One of the no, long no, answers, Steve. Let me ask you. So you, uh, when did you design the Billie Jean I, I coach? Was it during these years at the club in Baltimore? Then, then you actually sold the club yeah. and everything went hook, line, and sinker into developing, you know, basically yeah. what you're doing today. Uh, pretty, much, pretty much that way. I think what happened in the 80s, in the 80s, yeah, in 1990, yeah, when I met in that one year where the Wilmer Institute said, <laughs> you got no shot if your eyes jumping. You have to figure out how to control it. And then met the scientist, <clears throat> Dr. Ron, who studied how to, the connectivity between thought 
and action and instincts. And during the point, when that happened, he had already designed and patented his idea. But we didn't have the device. He just had the idea. But the idea made so much sense uh, that that's when I flew up with Arthur. I said, well, you got to meet with us. And I said, I, I think I told you a story. We met with him. And for one hour, he said, I'll give you one hour. And uh, I said, okay. So scientists up, a couple of the other guys. Remember Ken DeHart? You know, remember, you know Ken DeHart, right? Ken, yeah. Actually, his son came yeah, and spent yeah. a week with us one time. Oh, yeah. Shit, everybody should. Uh, anyway. Uh, we flew us up and we said, yeah, because Ken got involved. And he said, yeah, this makes it interesting. Arthur met with an hour. I said, okay. He, he said, thanks, guys. I'll be right back in five minutes. So say goodbye. He comes back, says, well, cancel the rest of the day. Let's keep going. And then he, he, and he gets into the science. All he cared about was the science. The science, the science, the history of mankind, how, we, uh, how our humans can be, our survival instincts can be used in sports, how they can be used in academics, how they can be used to make the world a better place. And so that's how the, that's really how we got this thing going. And then back to tennis, and he called John McEnroe, who had just quit, said, John, you've got to meet with these guys. And we went and met with John. John, uh, Dr. Ron was the only person who could talk to John. He gave him the, the, the cue uh, to strengthen his eye at contact. He felt it. This is great. His instincts were reconnected. He went back, started playing. But John went on. <laughs> we never heard from him again. But it was really cool. And I was the hitting guy on the other side. But I just kept watching. The ball got heavier, Steve, and heavier and heavier. And all Dr. On went over to is just said, said, I know what he said now. He said, just make your contact. Don't worry where he goes. Just make your contact. And those instincts started to pick up, pick up, pick up. And I had trouble at the end. Um, so it was really cool. And then... Um, how I got to be so good at this was I took my whole academy guys and I said, you guys, you take the top players. I'm going to take the beginner. I'm going to take the four and five-year-olds. And for the first year in the academy, that's all I taught. I taught them. We met three times a week in the academy. It, it not many people liked working with me. They liked me maybe, but three times a week. Why did I meet? I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a system. Dr. I had the science. But I didn't have a system like you, like you've developed. And so we had to develop one from the inside out, what to say, what not to say, what to say, what not to say, that would trigger these instincts. So every week uh, we were videoing, we were looking at things. No, no, yeah, we were putting arrows on hips. So maybe that'll turn it. No, that was messing them up. So eventually we got down to this three cues uh, for, the, for, the, for the kids in, uh, in school. It's going to be position, swing, and move. And we can cover all the basics, position, swing, and move using the uh, devices, the sweet spot trainers. Uh, we can trigger all the instincts. And for the high-level players, uh, it's pretty much the same, except we, uh, we need the, the, the uh, pathway for the coach. What the coach wants downloaded, we can download it and strengthen the eye. The instincts pop up. 80% of it is now trained. So that's another circle I just went through. I, I can't imagine anybody listening to this, but Steve, you have let my me, let me, complete let me, privilege to, to delete all no, this. No, no, this is all great. Let me ask you, uh, you're referring to Dr. On. Is that Benjamin On? Yes. Okay, so sounds like you've done a lot of the type of things that I did. I mean, I spent a lot of time with Vic Braden Associates. He, he used to give me calls yep. periodically, and a lot of people in Vic's circle, I mean, I used to just say, okay, this is uh, Star Wars, meaning it's uh, scientific and space age and over my head. Let me go back also. Did you cross paths working with the eye, Harvey Ratner? You know that name? Yes. Yes. I, I know did. Vic, besides the, working the with Benjamin, he used, to, he used to work with Harvey Ratner. Yeah. 
Um, Harvey really smart guy, smart guy, and there's different levels of science. And his science is is the belief of the eye being a muscle you can train and work with. And, and from an ophthalmological point of uh, optometry point of view, there's some value in it. From a neurological point of view, um, it's got to go deeper. Um, and it again depends on what thought triggers your eye to do what specific actions. And so. Uh, Dr. An um, would pass any inspection from any neurological department in which I took him to because I had to be sure myself because I didn't know what he was talking about either. But I just knew instinctively that nobody's ever taught me what he's saying. I've never heard it. And what Harvey does um, is it's good. I mean, I don't want to put down anything, especially on a podcast like this, but Vic had the science and the physics and Dr. Ron had the science and the neurological side. There was some conversation there. Um, but to have that merge, uh, he, Dr. Ron wasn't ready. I don't think that the other world was ready. Now we're 25 years later and now there is a, a you know, now there's a need to say, why is 80% of the balls I'm hitting with great technology, great physics, great, great science. Why is still 80% and that's, Scientific fact, the USDA tested, looked at all of our studies, 80% are still miss it. So there's where neurologically it, it becomes really important. And again, I put myself at the third grade level. Uh, I'm not going to operate on anybody's eye. I'm not going to get into the optic nerve. Um, but I can, I do know now what, what I didn't know. And so the purpose of me coming on here is to share time with you, share this science. Um, get feedback from people like you to be able to see what we're doing. Um, and we're now we're launching this new program, which would be anybody anywhere around the world can actually get in, uh, in 10 hours, sweet spot brain training. Um, and, and that's, what's exciting. I hope that people will take a look at that. I hope that Steve, you are, uh, any, any input that you give us is fantastic. We've got hundreds. Well, actually, what am I doing? Throw it back. I went to you for input, uh, 10 years ago. Well, let me ask so you. You're, with, you're part of it. Well, thank you. Let me ask you with, uh, I mean, all the tennis clubs I visit, they have Billie Jean King eye coaches. Um, so the work you're doing now is in addition to that. That's a training tool. And now yeah. you have more systematic yeah. rationale. Yeah. You know, take the iPhone, uh, iPhone one, uh, we're at iPhone 20, uh, the version, the model looks the same, but the software is, is it makes it all the difference. You can, you can hit on a ball on a stick. Um, and you could knock off balls on the sticks. And we have some new ones that are going to have AI and AR technology in them, so that's going to be patent proof. But the real technology is the uh, is the software, is the vocabulary, and the ability put to uh, understand how to integrate um, with the software the such a, the difficulty that a coach has. And getting those mechanics memorized. So you are, are a leader in it. Um, this is so difficult to get the reps. You're one of the few that says you've got to have the reps, 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 reps. There's no short, quick, fixed answer. And we know that. Our system, here's a number for you. Our system, in five weeks, 6,500, not 65, 6,500 sweet spot hits, solid sweet spot hits are ingrained in the brain in that stroke in five weeks. 
doing 10, 10 minutes a day at home and 30 minutes a week on court. We can accomplish what a coach needs accomplished and have permanent lasting improvement. 6,500 sweet spot hits is the difference between a Grand Slam winner. When they miss, it triggers a sweet spot hit. When I miss, it triggered a miss hit because I had more miss hits in my brain than I had stored sweet spot hits. So it's called sweet spot brain training for that purpose. With the device, we can get them in. The brain doesn't know any different than on a court or off a court. It's triggering a moving object like the swatter, like the, like the shadow swing, but we're putting the field of contact. The brain is storing it. We then have them go on the court for 30 minutes a week, and then we meet with them weekly for 15 minutes, and they, we discuss, okay, show me what you're doing. Okay, now tell me what your problem is. I just got off of one person uh, in Canada. So it's, it's growing. We're going to be bringing coaches in now so we can make this transferable. But it's, the best part for me is I would send my student there in a second. Get this thing in your system so when you come back, I can get you faster what you want. So that's, that's kind of the thing that Billie Jean and I want to do. We want to help schools. We want to help coaches. We want to help students that can't afford coaches. This is going to be far more affordable than uh, some, I think it comes to like $75 a week. Uh, but you get permanent improvement. Let me go back to reps. Uh, and this goes back to your history as a tennis player. You know, I know yeah. we could have another podcast with you. I think of uh, somebody who you probably played against, Cliff Ritchie, his sister Nancy, and their father George. Yeah. San Angelo, yeah. Texas, tennis players, small town in West yeah. Texas, tennis players come from everywhere. But like yeah. yourself, it just, the reps, the reps, the reps. But uh, those are things that we could touch upon. I just, I think they're combined, the history of your your background in tennis all the way to today. But what about anxiety? I like to tell people, tell juniors or parents that relaxation skills are as important or maybe more important than racket skills. Uh, don't you think the sneak a peek, the always shifting the head has a lot to do with it? They just don't have the confidence or they're, they're too outcome oriented. They're not in the moment. That's a great question. Great, great question. And great conversational point. Why are we so stressed out when we hit a tennis ball? We catch a ball. It's pretty simple. But when you hit a ball, the stress in our brain goes up 10 times. It's ridiculous amount of stress. And, and so if we can remove that stress, neurologically what's causing it um so yeah we want our players relaxed we want our players in the moment we want our players not stressed we want them focused we don't want them into the future so why in the heck do we say keep your head down keep still they still keep looking up neurologically if the throwing concept which is when you your target is a distance away i want to make the ball go from here to there you look there there becomes stronger than here. When there is stronger than here, and my mind is now no longer concerned about the contact, but where it's going to go, the stress creates more stress because now I'm trying to do two things at once. I'm trying to hit the ball here solidly in front of me, but I also want to go cross court. And guess which one wins? Cross court will win unless you strengthen the muscle for here. And that's what our system does. That is what Dr. On literally did between catching, hitting, and throwing. He designed a device, designed a system, a sweet spot braining training system that triggers here and removes there. And that's why the visualization comes in with Vimo. So we can now quiet the brain, 
get you the relaxation that you want in that kid neurologically, meaning what they're thinking is more important than what they're feeling. We know that what you think determines what you feel. If you're thinking improperly during the point, then you're going to need a sports psychologist after the point. If you're thinking properly during the point, then you can become your own solution and your brain will be quiet. The stress goes down uh, enormously. That neuropathway starts to fire. I think it's like 50 million bits to 44 million bytes per second. Uh, some crazy number that actually happens when the instincts take over to hit the firing down to your hand is so much faster. Um, and I think that's a scientific third grade level scientific uh, explanation for how do we get these kids to become less stressful? Let's ask them what they're thinking. Well, what are you thinking about? Well, we know we don't want them to think about their technique when they're playing. We know we don't want them to think about their footwork when they're playing. We know we want them to be focused on the ball when they're playing, so they might give us it, or they may be thinking about where the ball is going to go. Or then the score. We or the score. Are, are they going to win or lose? Or the score. Or the score. So now we get to teach them what should you think, and it's sweet spot brain training. We drill in those 6,500 sweet spot hits, what to think when the ball comes to you, what to think when you get to it, and what to think when you swing. And if you're going to, and for your technique, we teach you to memorize that technique. Um, well, you do it best. Memorize it in a way that they can memorize it fast. We now are just making a more affordable way, which is you can now do it at home. The same thing that we need them to do at court. Do it at home. You can do it faster. You can get the, you get we get a thousand solid sweet spot hits in uh, a week at the end of six weeks. And believe me, it took twenty uh, ten years to figure out how many. Steve, which should, do we need twenty thousand? Do we need ten thousand hours? Do we need no? We need ten hours. We need uh, ten uh, an hour a week at home and a half hour a week uh, on the court, and we can memor get that built in. And now you can go play your matches. Lenny, I know you're pressing cool, time. Huh? Let me that is cool. Let me ask you two two no, questions. I'm good. I, two, I, two, I, I, I pushed till one thirty, so I'm good. Oh, then, okay, great, great. Good. I was. Um, well, the question I have on my mind right now is uh, usually it's asked at the end, but if you just answer it now, uh, how do people get a hold of you? How can they get in touch with Lenny Schloss yeah. and what you're doing? Well, if you ask my kids, they say you have to go to Mars because he doesn't live on this planet anymore. <laughs> but the, the real, <laughs> the real, actually true. <laughs> that's, it, that's what they said. Um, yeah, I think I think for those that want to know more about sweet spot brain training, uh, Lenny L E N N Y at uh, the T H E next word E Y E C O H C O A C H dot com. Lenny at dicoach dot com. Uh, I'll spell it again, L-E-N-N-Y at, and then it's two E's in the middle, all one word, T-H-E-E-Y-E-C-O-A-C-H.com, coach.com. That'd, that'd be the easiest. And uh, the team that's ready to roll out, we only have a limited amount that we can take in this in this next run because uh, we do them very personally at this point. Um, but it's really cool. And uh, I love talking about and helping people. So anytime. Here's another question. Uh, a friend of mine, I just happened to be telling, telling him um, that I was talking to you um, today on the phone. He said, hey, hey, my brother worked for him. It was Luke Wickham told me that. His brother, Jay, who played at Northern Iowa. Yeah. And uh, he said to ask you about being part of the longest match in the history of tennis. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, speaking of game changing, um, 
Um, after Wimbledon, you are invited to Newport, Rhode Island, the Hall of Fame, where Jimmy Van Allen at the time was running what's called the Van Allen tiebreaker system. We all know what the tiebreaker is today. But we didn't have it in those days, so we could play matches forever and ever and ever. And Jimmy Van Allen was a very successful diplomat uh, gentleman who ran this tournament. We're an ascot, and it was, they're all very formal. You got the benefit of coming over and playing this Van Allen tiebreaker system, which was literally tiebreakers instead of sets. Um, and they were seven point or ten point, I don't remember. And so we did that, and uh, and then the tournament began, and we were high ranked doubles team, so we were on the center court. And the match uh, began at uh, I don't know one o'clock um, first day and ended the next day. We were seven and a half hours. Uh, to complete this one match and because there's no tiebreaker. And so the first set was normal, uh, 3-6, since I lost the longest doubles match. Second set was uh, 49-47. Wow. And the third set, they closed this out at 23-21. So what do you think happened a year later? Because Jimmy Van Allen had been for years, 10 years at least, saying we're never going to be able to grow this sport to where it is today if we continue to do that. Television, you don't want to do that. You know, basketball games have an, you know, a certain time. And so there you go. Um, I was a part of another history of making event, losing the longest doubles match. Now, whether that was actually the turning point, I don't know. But whether I'm in the longest, whether I'll be forever for my grandkids uh, in the Guinness Book of Records, that's a yes. There'll be no doubles match, two out of three sets that will ever go 149 or 147 games. Yeah, I looked it up. You played against Dickie Dell, Donald Dell's brother. Um, yeah. Dick, yeah. Dick Leach, and then you played with yeah. uh, Tom Mosier. Is that right? Right. He was my doubles partner at the University of Tennessee. And um, we went on on the circuit after that. Describe uh, the tennis boom. So the tiebreaker really to me, launched the tennis boom because it put tennis, as you said, in a time capsule, then it could be on TV. And there was yeah. back in the day with, before there was PBS, there was just CBS, ABC, NBC. And there was yeah. times where there'd be tennis on two out of the three channels. Why don't you, for our yeah. listeners, just tell them what's your, what comes to your mind as far as tennis in the 70s, when tennis really took off in America? Uh, tennis in the 70s? Um like I said, my past thinking is clogged, but I think, Steve, what was so not interesting or not newsworthy is the obvious. And the obvious was, what else could you do? You know, it was it was a cool sport to do. Um, it was a, a free sport. And in those days, you didn't have to worry about where you were. You could be out till, you know, six or seven at night, so to speak. You know, it wasn't that dangerous, so you could get your practice in. And um, uh, so it it was, um, and kids in those days were not as immediately trained for gratification as they were today. So it was a natural uh, marriage, in, in my mind, thinking backwards. And, and you may, you know, tell me what you think. But I think those are probably the, the factors that allow tennis to like, okay, here's a void. We can step in. We don't have to be on a golf course for 100 hours. It's affordable. It's recreational. It can be. We can put them up anywhere, and uh, and our kids can go get some athletic uh, stuff, and uh, and it's good for them, and it's a sport for a lifetime, and so it'll be really good, and and they'll stick out there. So kids were willing to 
do the hard work that today uh, is not part of our ND, and what's it called? DNA. <laughs> With yeah. uh, uh, tennis in Baltimore, that was certainly not a hot spot for tennis. You mentioned Pam no. Shriver being from there, and obviously there's, there's players from everywhere, but um, the first, your initial several years in tennis, I mean, you really probably didn't play outside of Baltimore, correct? Just in your your local area? Played anybody well, and everybody? As a kid, you mean yeah. me as a kid? Uh, yeah, well, me as a kid at 15, it's interesting, yeah, I just, I'm realizing what you asked. At 15, I was, I got good fast, and then a few businessmen got together and said, uh, this kid's good, and flew me out to California to get out of Baltimore. Okay. And played over in California for uh, a, a month or six weeks at 16 or 15, it must have been 16 because I still couldn't. No, it's 16, yeah. And uh, uh, I played those tournaments and did, I, I did all right. And the last tournament I think I remember there was the National Clay, National Hardcore Championships in Arcadia, California. Yeah, I am remembering. And uh, this, this young kid by the name of Stan Smith was the guy I was going to play. And um, I lost. It was a close match. I don't remember. But um, I actually went around. I didn't have a car, but the guy was staying with had a motorcycle. And so here I am, 16 years old, going around Southern California on the freeways to my tournaments with my racket bag on my back and by myself and staying in this uh, guy's apartment. And uh, But when I came back, I felt like I was really experienced. <laughs> So I did get out of Baltimore for a little bit, and then I only had one more year left, and I went to the University of Tennessee. Uh, but Baltimore, I, I think, was typical, Steve, of places that that uh, kids want to do something, and the parents want to do something. And tennis is, it is, you know, it's such a, so many things you get out of the sport. Uh, I didn't get that much because all I felt was my failures, but if you're got to around the right coaches, then you can you can really learn from your mistakes. Once you get better at your mistakes, and then ultimately once you start correcting your mistakes, you've learned a life lesson. In in Baltimore, uh, Don Candy in Aussie, he ended up uh, in Baltimore. Did you work with him at all? Yes, yes. I didn't really work with him. I'd gotten pretty good by then, so I was coming back uh, in between stints, and he was there. He did influence me uh, in his uh, human touch. Uh, his he, again, like I mentioned, my parents are great, but the, you know they just weren't around for the hugging and loving and hey, you're okay. It's something about Don. I felt like he's like almost a father figure, and uh, and and you know what? He was like twenty years, thirty years older than me. And I'd come back, and sometimes he actually still beat me. Uh, and I was big, I mean, not big, fast, but fast and strong, and look at me. And, and he was conniving and had terrible strokes, but but just could jump me up and, and get me. To, and, and I didn't ever mind it, because every time I finished, I was just glad to be around him. Yeah, the Aussies, I mean, obviously he was a very good player, but not one of the, you know, one of the Hopman elite Davis Cup Champions right, year right. after year, but uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing what the, the Aussies from the '60s, late '50s oh, and '60s, what they accomplished yeah. in tennis. What about Kalamazoo? Well, that was on clay at one point, uh, where the 18s was best of five. What are your recollections of Kalamazoo? Did you play Kalamazoo? Um, no, 
Uh-uh. Really? But I do have a relation of, uh, of uh, the Aussies. And I was invited to be their punching bag and uh, play with them. And I'm trying to think who was there. Then the Ruffle, Ray Ruffles and uh, Phil Bowery and uh, Neil Frazier was the captain. And uh, I remember going out one night and I never drank. I never did anything. I was doing double knee jumps and kangaroo jumps and whatever. Uh, and I went out and and they were they were early and they said, yeah, come on. And they're all having such a good time uh, drinking and having fun and having their beers. And I sat at the other table because I don't drink. And they come, you know, kind of like, come on, come on, come on over. And, you know, I did. But it, the, the experience of working out with them was also really cool. Um, that was, that was, I liked that. Party hard, practice hard. I, Neil Frazier, who won Wimbledon, uh, I was I fortunate to see him playing seniors. And I'll never forget him missing his shot and yelling out, I can believe it. <laughs> instead of yelling out, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Right. Yeah, that's good. What was your, what was your, Steve, what, what memory do you have most that got you so involved with coaching tennis? Well, thanks for asking. I am not really from the tennis world. I grew up, you know, 10, 12 miles from the Canadian border into a hockey family. And, you know, I also am a product of the tennis boom and the tiebreaker tiebreaker came into place everybody started playing tennis uh, i thought a tennis court was for street hockey and we, we just didn't play and then i i was at a boarding school actually even before that uh, back in the day everybody turned 16 and i would have loved to have kept going to a hockey school in canada that i used to go to but my parents us my father i was going off to a prep school i remember said now you have to learn what it's like on the other side of the tracks and hmm. I, got, I got a job um in the Adirondack mountains, washing dishes. And my cabin was right by two tennis courts and they weren't used very often. I often think about it. I watched these counselors that were there to teach tennis. And I thought they were just fantastic, but I had, I had no exposure to tennis. And then from there, I went to a prep school and, um, I, um, the, right outside my window were tennis courts, but still I had really no connection to tennis, but my senior year and I had senioritis they reinstated a rule at this prep school. You had to play three sports every season. And I, um, they were, they were letting the hockey players do, you know, dry land training for hockey. So basically we were just fooling around the old gym playing street hockey. So, and I was a small guy. I got out of peewee football and the older brothers recommended that I run cross country. So the AD, the athletic director say, hey, Smith, why don't you uh, run the two mile? So I signed up for tennis and you know, I just, I fell in love with it, but then I also felt like I, I had my own ticket in tennis where, you know, I wasn't going to make the NHL in hockey. And, you know, I played in college first year, I had an operation on my ankle and my oldest brother was studying hockey s- systems. So I said, you know, and I actually met somebody you probably know, Dave Eddy. And uh, yeah. Dave, Dave Eddy, he invented the 10 tube, you know, the thing where you pick up tennis balls and I used to hitchhike mm-hmm. everywhere. And then I was exposed to, uh, he was a tennis pro in upstate New York. And I yeah. said, I said, I could, I could, I was intrigued by learning how to play. Um, and then I went to Boca Raton and proud of the fact that I went out, got an airplane, didn't know anybody. And I became the perennial tennis bum of Boca Raton. But I, I think that helped me out because, um, you know, I didn't get into tennis. I knew I was told I had to learn to play to teach. And then once I had a, and I'm embarrassed to say it now because people don't play open tournaments. Um, but I, you know, you, you, 
you make you embellish your bio and I was top 20 in Florida. I was 19 as far as being an amateur in Florida. But so mm-hmm. I, I went there to learn how to play. And then, but I, I wasn't learning as a nine-year-old. And then I kept reading and listening and going here and going there. So uh, I really, um, back in the day, I, I think, okay, like you love sports and you'd become a P major. And I didn't really want to do that. But like my older brothers, uh, the Vietnam war, the, the, I remember we used to all sit around. You would have been part of that. You sit around the TV and your birthdays pulled out of a hat. And, and I remember they dropped, they dropped the draft. So I, I later went back to school, but I withdrew from school and had this mission to go uh, become a tennis teaching pro. So my background is a little bit different in that way, but I, cause I got into it to, you know, I knew I had to learn to play, but I got into it to um, be a tennis teacher, tennis coach. Yeah, that's a that's rare, you know, I, to me because uh, I think if you ask nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine out of ten thousand coaches, uh, I don't think the coaching was the stimulus. Uh, I think in in my experience so far, not that it's a, a blanket, uh, but it's a credit to to you um, in the respect that many coaches are became coaches for different reasons than wanting to coach. Um, and it became something that was easy or natural and Hey, the natural step on, I just go in this direction. I don't think they started out playing to become a coach. They started playing to become a great player. Yeah, Um, that's a good point. Number one, uh, as a, I think this is, goes back to the question that would uh, be true with your timetable as an American kid, it was a close fraternity. And when I was a kid, uh, there was uh, two Americans in the NHL. And the, the Americans weren't really looked at until the Miracle on Ice in 1980. But I remember hearing John Lloyd say this. He's a little bit younger than you. He, The people from that era, or even go back a few more years to your group, is when you got into tennis, you just got in it for the love of the game. Because mm-hmm. because you didn't you you weren't going to make big money even the baseball football players I mean they were making a very good living but people from yesteryear when they got into tennis it was just for love of the game yeah yeah I I, I think it's probably I think and ten percent um, is an immense gratification from winning and succeeding and doing something well um, and if you can so. So the school teachers today, I'm just uh, prophesizing, if you're in education, you're doing it for the love of the game. <laughs> and, and, and we were pretty much as players doing it for the love of the game and the opportunity to maybe, you know, excel at something that uh, we felt we, you know, would, would be athletically worth achieving. Right. You, you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, with, uh, you know, I asked you about where your shortstop, because usually the really athletic players put it shortstop. I mean, one of your partners, yeah. Billie Jean King, we do a drill called shortstop. And we just, we ground out a tennis ball and see if kids can just catch it and then yeah. pretend they're throwing the ball to first base. And it's, yeah. it's abysmal. I mean, unfortunately with computers or iPhones, whatever kids, it's like, Hey, you can't catch the ball. Now in your day, my day, you know, if you can catch a ball, the PE teachers were, were handing out internal scars. But, you know, then you, yeah. you go a little bit deeper and her, her brother was, I think, a pitcher for San Francisco, Randy Muffet. Her father was a fire, right. fireman. Her mother was yeah. a seamstress. You yeah. know, no money and just yep. started at a public park. And, yeah. 
you know, we need to go back to that. I we think we really need to find a way to make tennis um, less costly. And what you're talking about, what you, you know, and you could elaborate a little bit more upon that. And we could sign off with how people can do things on their own, how they can get their reps on their own. And, um, mm. you know, we're getting to the point where lessons are $100 an hour. Then when people live up north and there's indoor courts, it's it's like and we're it's killing crazy. it. We're killing it. But um, tell us a little bit more about um doing the work off the court. I guess we could, t- we could end it there. Yeah. I just, what I would like to, before I pass off on you is that yeah. uh, this is your podcast, but the, what, what we need more of Steve is more. Uh, and I think it's in every, in every stage of life today. Um, we're getting skewed to values that are not lasting values. And I'm getting, getting on my little horse for about another second because of you, which is why I was when you asked us, yes, it would be an honor, is that there's no doubt when you meet you and people like you, you gravitate to them. But why do you gravitate to them? And uh, yeah, for your audience, I'm not getting paid to say any of this stuff, uh, is there's a truth in being truthful. There's a truth in being heartful, heartfelt. When, why do people go to Arthur Ashe? Why do they gravitate to Billie Jean? Because their values are grounded in making the world better. And and so compliments to you, Steve, and compliments to your success with this uh, podcast and compliments to the people that are listening. Because at the end of the day, if it, we are not making ourselves better from something and we are benefiting at the cost of something, then um, we really are going in the wrong direction. So my partnership with Billie Jean is um, completely grounded in why I do stuff, why I'm doing it, what I'm doing. It's cost me a lot in terms of the financial side, but it's not cost me a penny in terms of uh, being able to talk to you. So compliments to you, Steve. Keep doing what you're doing uh, in in putting your heart out there because that's, that's how we are going to turn things around and the world becomes a little more... Um, spiritually based instead of me based. Um, so I got off the track there. I know you asked me a question. I completely forgot it. Well, just to elaborate about the, uh, and I appreciate your kind words with, uh, and then your words sure. about what Arthur Ashe, Billy King stand for. How's it go? If you, you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. But the, uh, the number of reps that someone needs and that you, Oh, okay. It's not, you know, if you study tennis, obviously there's so many players, it's not like they were homeschooled and playing six hours a day. And um, if you just talk about the, the balance of uh, what you can do off court and on court with reps. Got it. Yeah. The brain is a, a magical piece of the puzzle. That's why Billy Jean and Arthur jumped on this. And that's, I'm, I'm sticking with it. What we can do now, what we used to do 50 years ago, night and day. In the last 10 years, we've perfected a system that works at every level for anyone so they can get the quality reps they need, 80% at home, you need about 5,000, you can get 1,000 a week uh, with a minimum practice and be able to accelerate at a much faster rate. It's affordable. Our units, uh, the system itself is um, it's very inexpensive. The training program that we're offering, which is called Sweet Spot Brain Training, if somebody just wanted to practice, let me make it even easier. If you say, you know what? My biggest problem is I need 
I just got my the greatest lesson. I'm the, I mean, I'm so good at that. I don't have time to practice. My kid goes to school. He does this, or I'm working on this. I can't get to the court to practice. We've got your answer. It's Billie Jean King's iCoach. You go to that website. It's Billie Jean King's iCoach. It's perfect practice. There's 16 drills that you can now do for your forehand and your backhand, integrating in whatever the lessons you want. You don't have to go to the court. You're building your eye in so that you'll correct yourself. You become self-correcting in about four to five hours of, of practice, an hour a week, 10 minutes a day. Go get those machines. They're guaranteed to give you the reps that you need between lessons so that your skills that you have been learning can be perfected and you're hitting the center of your strings much higher. Even our study of the first 30 minutes was a 43% increase in solid hits. But that was the first 30 minutes. You still got to put the reps in to make it last. If you say, no, I'm... So that's Billie Jean King's uh, iCoach system. The second phase is for is use my email address. What we're launching now are for those people that want to get to the next level in their strokes and they're working with their coaches or they don't have a coach. We have a very affordable coaching system where 80% of your lessons you're going to be doing at home on Zoom with our sweet spot trainer that you'll be training on. And then uh, you'll be given a prescription every week for practice so that that stroke becomes permanently improved. And the only, and Steve, I'd love your opinion about this. Our KPI, our key performance indicator is only one thing. And I'd like your opinion on it. Our key performance indicator is how fast can you correct yourself in a match? Like a grand slam winner. When they miss it, doesn't break them. They come right back and they can correct the next ball. Our job with each stroke, is to get you at that level in our stroke program where you're self-correcting during the point like a Grand Slam winner at a one-to-one ratio. Typically, people start out at four to five to one. They miss hit. I mean, they make a solid hit and they miss hit. They miss five, six, seven, or they go all the way down the two. When we finish with that stroke, that stroke will be self-correcting after 6,500 hits plus your on-court training. In five weeks, you will have permanent we're going to give a three-year lasting improvement in that as long as you practice about 15 minutes a month to keep it going. So that's that's the answer to reps. That's the answer to time. It's the answer to money. It's, for me, the answer to my personal goal, which is no child left behind in respect that um, I wish I had known why I miss it. I wish I had had the 6,500 reps. I wish I would had Steve Smith's uh, foundation or Vic Braden's foundation. My techniques were average. I got a lot better out of them because of my guttiness, but I really could have had a much, if I had had a found, the foundation, Steve, if you had been, say, Lenny, will you come over and just join me for a while? We could have been on tour by now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know uh, Steve Denton's been a guest of ours. He says the same thing. that if, And, and it's really, it's not, it's, it's who I've been trained by, teachings, information transfer. I was just fortunate to yeah. hang around with some people who really knew what they were doing. Don't stop doing it. All we're going to do is fill in the blanks with practice. Get the reps in, quality reps, not not a thousand reps where eighty percent are miss hits, which is unfortunately what the number is. But we can reverse that. So, did I did I answer any all the questions? Did I? No, no, fantastic. Basics? You get an A plus. Um, for our listeners, there's two types of people. Number one, you're all in, and number two, you're not all in. And, and Lenny Schloss is all in. But uh, no, I'd love to get you on another time and 
Uh, we'll do it. So, so many things uh, from, I, I really love the character tennis and to hear you talk about the old days. And I know, I know yeah. I've read so much about, and I even had a chance to watch so many of the people that you played against. And, and one of our uh, longtime students associates, Dave Anderson, who certainly has yeah. some Billy Jean King high coaches out in Dallas, Brookhaven. I know you've been there with, yeah. uh, he has, a, he says, what we need to do to improve tennis is go with the title from a movie back to the future there's a lot of things from the old days that we need to bring back to the new days but yeah. but i think it's great that you got to be on you're on both sides and that you know with it the technological side that you're you're dealing with it's great it's all great in this case follow the science and start from the neck up uh if it's not working from the neck down uh then get in touch with us again it's lenny at the icoach.com i'm i'm out there i don't need to make uh, I'm not pushing this from any point of view, except that if you care and you're listening on this podcast, then there's new information. Billy Jean is my partner. And the reason we are doing this is we want this out, not for us to keep it, but for it to be for all coaches, all schools, all kids to be able to have these devices for sweet spot brain training is what we think is going to be a giant step forward in getting the reps that everybody is trying to get and, and not have the coach standing there right next to you. Am I doing it right? These machines actually dictate to you that you have to do it right. You feel it every single time. So, Steve, it's come a long way from when Dave Anderson had them. We had the machines out, but we really did not have the software or the programs to support it. So, uh, unfortunately, you, you live and learn, and fortunately, we have learned. So, well, no, it's, it's, it's been, been, an update, been an update, and that's what we need to do is – Go up, up, up. But Lenny, uh, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Uh, you're awesome. Thanks for having me on. And bye, everybody. If I can help, call me. All right. Bye. Thanks, Lenny. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Lenny Schloss, great guy. Let me go through a few things, and we'll wrap it up here. Um, with uh, I heard a golfer say not too long ago, you lift your head to see how you just hit a bad shot. Um, phraseology, you know, don't sneak a peek. The brain's a fifth of the second head of the hand. So for every adjustment, there's a counter adjustment. So when the eyes go, and obviously, Lenny, I just, there's so many things um, reviewed from this podcast. The type of thing I would ask junior tennis players is, what did Lenny say when I said that Knoxville is a really beautiful place? He said, well, I just saw the tennis courts. Maybe he said, I just saw the tennis court in those, a few classrooms. But when the eyes go, the head goes, and inch for inch, the head's the heaviest part of the body. Um, and obviously, Lenny has, a, like all of us uh, listening to this podcast, has so much respect for Braden. When you shift your own head, you disturb the flight pattern of your racket head. You shorten your hitting zone when you shift your head. Uh, you can get on YouTube, and I think that uh, the rhythm counting that Lenny taught, um, I think obviously very humble guy, but it's like when we had uh, Jim Lair on, I was very excited. Before we interviewed Jim, we had dedicated two podcasts to Jim, and, and Jim had listened to them. And we went back to the old days when he was on the court and uh, – doing things like making kids play each other with, they would just switch rackets. And then he, you know, we all learned from here, there and everywhere. He would pour water over the kids' grips. Um, Jimmy Connors used to do that before a match. 
He just used a leather grip and he would pour water over the leather grip and then start really trying to dry the grip as much as possible. And they said, why are you doing that? And Jimmy was just trained to say, when it counts, my grip's going to be wet. And, you know, those are the pearls of wisdom that I really love. Um, the uh, Bill Tim, very successful tennis teacher. You know, you see young uh, Ben Shelton, Brian Shelton. Brian was uh, a disciple of Bill Tim. He was, uh, I think, the voice for it. I shouldn't say I think he was the voice of the USPTA for years. He used to talk about Borg and Fetter, how they just keep their heads so still. With, um, but yeah, so keep the head still, not shifting the head with um, so, so many things. I think another key word that Lenny, besides reps, there's so many key words, but instincts. For years, we've said I plus I plus I equals I, I to the third power of it. Information, ideas, and insights equal instincts. And you want to um, do reps. You want to repeat the basic movement over and over and over again so much that when you start to compete and the competitive juices are flowing, is basics turn into instincts. And you just fundamentals. And the great coaches from every sport is over and over again. I think the visualization would be another key word. I'll just sign off with that. I know nothing about basketball. But when basketball players stand at a foul line and it's a standstill shot, palm to their target, the technique from one player to the next is so similar. We always tease and say, well, maybe not with Shaq. Or we even years ago, Will Chamberlain, who at times threw his foul shots um, underhand. But that, that's such a key part of basketball. And it's palmed to the target. You know, we have a, a short video clip where the statement is basketball and tennis are so much the same because your target is small and elevated. But when people are on a tennis court, they don't understand the target. They think the target is low and large, not s- small and elevated. But uh, to me, when a basketball player releases I just think the ones that are so successful is that phrase, I got this, I got this. And they're, they're wired, like he was talking about. They're, they're not thinking outcome. They're not thinking score. They're, they, they, need, they just, it's built in. It becomes just their internal wiring that this is what the arc of the shot, this is what the measurement of the shot over and over again. And, and they're just so consistent. I think also too, um, a phrase he talked about balance. The Welby Van Horn used to say that you have to become so athletic, um, you're on balance when you're in an off balance position. I think like, so many things, but um, bonuses. It, he was a multiple sport athlete, and to come from the baseball diamond, I did get a kick out of when he said that. Why is there so much stress between catching a ball and hitting a ball? You know, I know you get in the Hall of Fame if you hit a baseball one out of three times, but I, I never really was into baseball, but I played so much that everybody played in my day is that, I mean, I could look like a baseball player. I could catch, I could throw. I couldn't hit on either side, but I'd, I'd get up there and swing left hand and swing right hand. And people say, are you a switch hitter? I said, no, I, I can't hit either way. But with that stress levels and then the anxiety today, you talked about the work ethic today. So I just said, I just said I was going to take maybe one more point, but now it's rapid fire. But anyway, podcast 140, some people's serves go 140 miles per hour, not too many. 
Uh, but I hope that our listeners, I talked to someone the other day who's listened to all, po- all our podcasts and we're, we're flattered by that. And, and I do know when people are listening to podcasts, I tell our junior tennis players, I mean, really, they got to get their schoolwork done. But when they're listening to podcasts, once again, you hear it over and over again with our efforts, what we like to call it a contribution to tennis. You're not listening to quote unquote, Steve Smith stuff. Um, it, our connection is with, with people like Lenny Schloss and just, just the takeaways that fly away ball. You know, to me, that's a phrase that I stole from Lenny. You know, all good coaches are thieves. No, don't look at the flyaway ball. You know, the original Billie Jean King coach, I think perhaps everybody listening to this has seen one, is that just keep your head still. And um, Brady used to say, there's only one ball and you have it. It's on your side of the net. Um, Anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Lenny Schloss. Thanks, listeners. And I hope that you got something out of this uh, podcast. I, I certainly did. Thanks. 